0: Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deeper Still, a podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life as we seek to pay attention to the ways He calls us to go deeper still in relationship with Him and with one another. My name is Sue Ann Canfield and I have the joy of being the host of this podcast. And guess what? I'm so glad you're joining us today. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you ever wish you could manage your time differently? Do you know what I mean by that? Do you ever look at the pace of your life and just wish you could stop the world around you for just a minute, just a minute to breathe and maybe get some more stuff done? To be honest, if I could have one superpower, this would be it. The truth is most of us will never have enough time to do all the things we want to do. That's a fact of life. But there are also some habits and some practices that we can put in place that can shift our perspective in a way that can help us create a new relationship with time, one that focuses less on what it means to be productive and more about what it means to be faithful. Isn't that good? My guest today is here to help us think about just that. Today on Deeper Still, I am so excited to welcome back author, speaker, and podcast host herself, Jen Apollock-Michelle. Jen is the award-winning author of five books, including Teach Us to Want, that won Christianity Today's Book of the Year back in 2015. Also, A Habit Called Faith, which we talked about on this podcast, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. And also, In Good time. Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace, which is the topic of our conversation today. In addition to talking about what she calls the false religion of productivity, Jen and I spend some time in the second half of the conversation talking about a rule of life what it is, how she first encountered it, and how people like me and you might be able to use it as a tool to develop a more life-giving relationship with the clock. And hey, let's face it, who does not want that? We have so much ground to cover today, some things I hope will be helpful, especially as we begin a new year and as we prepare to enter the Lenten season that starts in just a few days. And so, my friends, whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself, saddle up, settle in, and listen in as Jen and I go deeper still. Welcome back to Deeper Still. It is so great to have you here today. Mm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Suan. As am I, it's so timely for a variety of reasons, and so I can't wait to dive in and just talk about all the things surrounding time and productivity and habits and rhythms that can hopefully uh, help our listeners, especially, I know it will help me, but help our listeners as we just try to figure out what maybe this year looks like, what what we may do differently, um, and how we may invest our time in ways that maybe we haven't thought of before. So I am I am really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I, I know uh, I've had you on the show before. I know you are probably very familiar to a lot of our listeners, but I was um, kind of cracking up because I was looking at your Instagram handle and uh, just your little description about yourself. You say, I make books, beds, dinner, and strong coffee. <laughs> <laughs> And I I love that, number one. And I thought, what a little snapshot of your life. Like, that's very telling. Um, (laughs) Some very telling things in there. And so I thought for those of you, uh, those who are listening who are not as familiar with you, just give us a little snapshot. Like, what do those things tell us about your life right now?
1: Yeah. Well, it is actually probably a lie that I make anyone's bed other than my own. (laughs) But I do have five children. um, And I, you know, have had seasons where I've made their beds. Um, Mostly, I've expected them to make their beds. For themselves and mostly they have disappointed me in that expectation (laughs) um so i make beds because i have a family and i do like like to keep my house neat um if possible um i live with ryan i have three older college-age children i have two kids that are still in high school twins that are sophomore boys um and we live in cincinnati And that is new for us over the last couple of years. I'm sure we'll probably chat about um, some life transitions and some of that story. Um, And yeah, I make books. I'm currently not making a book. So that's sort of a new change for me. But I started writing books when I my first book came out when I was 40. This is the year I'm turning 50. So I managed five books in the last decade. And I've just been kind of waiting on the next project. But that's just been really life-giving work. I'm very thankful for it. Um, And I would just say it has, those books have just kind of come out of a literary formation, but also just a spiritual formation, a spiritual formation of reading the scriptures, following Jesus since I was 16. And I never really expected to be writing books, um, but I'm really thankful, really thankful to be doing that. And strong coffee. I'm an early riser. (laughs) And so lest people think that, you know, early risers I don't know. There's some heroic quality. It's like you get up for the coffee. Um, so yeah, I make a lot of strong coffee. What else did I books bed? What else? Dinner. Yeah, I love yes. to cook. Yeah. Dinner. So domestic life. So that's a little snapshot.
0: It's a lot of a lot of good snapshots. I got a coffee pot, new coffee pot for Christmas that has a timer on it. And um, I've never had a coffee pot with a timer before. And so that timer goes off and it's like my alarm because it starts grinding the beans. And I'm so excited that coffee is brewing while I'm still in bed. And it is what gets me
1: out of bed in the morning. (laughs) I I just absolutely love it. I can't imagine like the smell wafting up to your bedroom and you're like, yes, I can I can do this day. Let's do this thing. <laughs> That's
0: right. It's so lovely. Um, well, Jen, last time you were here, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned your books. You are such a wonderful, beautiful writer. And last time you were here, we talked about your book, um, A Habit Called Faith, which has been so helpful to me in my journey. I know we've had people who have uh, listened to that podcast and got that book and even did, you know, we're coming up on Lent soon and and use that for mm. the Lenten journey. I think one of the phrases in, in that book that has stuck with me is to let habit take you by the hand and to lead mm. you to a life of faith. And, and we're going to, kind of bring some of that into our conversation today, as well as talk about some practical things that we can do that can help reframe some of our thinking when it comes to how we spend our time. And so I thought we could start out on and just kind of talking about time in general, how we mm. think about time, how we think. Think about productivity. You start out in your book, um, in your new book uh, that we are talking about today, we we start out, you start out uh, confessing that words like busy and productive are words that have defined you for most of your life, even proudly defined you during um, different seasons. But you've kind of been on a journey when it comes to what time looks like in your life and what even productivity means to you. And I'm wondering Mm. if you can just share a little bit about that journey and maybe how you've evolved over time.
1: Yeah, that try to be succinct, as succinct as possible. I guess I could just say that, you know, I was one of those people who always read the time management books, kind of thought that there would be just the secret sauce to having, living a productive life. And I think what I thought that meant, you know, I thought I could just sort of slap Christian discipleship, I guess, onto the category of productivity. Like, We're trying to get things done for God, right? And so if you're trying to get good things done, productivity must automatically be a good. Um, And so I think that there's like a consolation sometimes in busyness. You know, it's like my life must really be meaningful and purposeful because my calendar is full. And and, and the weird paradox, of course, is that everybody thinks they don't want to be as busy as they really are. So on the one hand, busyness feels good. And then on the other hand, busyness feels terrible. And you help you just can't wait for the day till your life is going to slow down. And I would say that that is, that is sort of been the kind of ebb and flow of especially my adult life. And then moving towards the pandemic, I mean, January of 2020, I was definitely in a busy season. I was finishing a book. I had some speaking on the calendar. I was traveling. And I was definitely thinking as soon as this busy season gives way, I can't wait. You know, I'm going to just, I'm going to just do all the, I'm going to rest. I'm going to enjoy some relationships, um, things that I had just put off, I guess I would say. And then we got into the pandemic and life is turned upside down, time is turned upside down. And here's what I realized. I think my biggest pandemic learning, especially early, was you know, busyness is something I seek. It actually is something that in this season, this pandemic season, I'm manufacturing. Because I was reading all the articles that said, organize your garage and clean out your pantry and you know, do all the things. You can't leave your house, but just be busy inside your house. And I took all of that advice because I was feeling very anxious about time. I was just feeling like I don't even recognize my life right now. So I'll just get busy with some things and that'll make me feel really good. I'll make use of this time that's been given to us. And I didn't feel any better. I actually just felt worse and worse and worse. And thankfully, I mean, I just started to talk to God about it. I just started to say, like, I think something's deeply disordered. I don't even know how to think about it. I suppose you'll lead me here. You know, I mean, I really I don't even know that I knew exactly it was about time. I thought maybe I was having vocational questions. I just I didn't even really know. But one thing that I was doing is that I was paying a lot of attention to the, just the pandemic journey. I was, I was writing a journal. I was doing that very diligently. And that's when I started to notice. I started to notice how in those initial pages, it was all about productivity. Like I just have to find ways to get things done. You know, I'll just have to make better lists. I'll have to make goals that I can achieve in this season that were all turned inside. And then that started to give way. And I started to notice, I just started to pay attention. And I mean, I can talk more about that. But I think what I eventually came to was, gosh, productivity is like not really a biblical ideal. I mean, we could, and, and I, the learning that I talk about in the book is moving towards a framework of fruitfulness. And in one way, fruitfulness is productivity, but seasonal, You know, a a vine can be productive in certain seasons. It can produce fruit, but not all year round. It's going to need some dormancy. And um, so I just started to think about a lot of the organic metaphors in scripture, started to claim fruitfulness as a way to think about my life and started to really recognize just some of the inhuman demands I had for my work, for, I guess, just my body even, and to recognize that human bodies don't work like machines. The other thing I would say that I paid attention to in my pandemic pages was just what really gave me life and joy. And so much of that was about people because we could see people so infrequently or in in these ways that we could, or, you know, we were just, we were missing people because we had absences that we were accounting for. And I would say that was a big shift for me, too, was just to really start to make more space for relationships. Um, So that's that's a start, I guess, on some of the learning.
0: That's a really good start. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this difference between being productive and bearing fruit. Mm -hmm. and how how, because I think some of we can still get caught even hearing you say that we can still get caught in this well I'm being really productive Um, I'm busy my calendar is full so therefore it must be meaningful as you said but oftentimes we can fill our calendar with things and feel like none of this is meaningful and I I think Mm. that's maybe this difference that you're getting at with what does it mean to actually for our our productivity or busyness those might not be the right words but to actually turn into fruitfulness and how do we know the Mm -hmm.
1: difference well fruitfulness is um a long slow growing affair I think is what I uh, what I've really come to realize and there's a reason why there's a tree on the front of the book is because this is the figure for human flourishing in scripture you know in psalm 1 and jeremiah 17 And if you know anything about a tree, like you don't grow one overnight. And productivity is so often just about it, it, the way it views time is that every minute is just standardized, equal to the next. The only thing that really matters is that the minutes are spent for like a visible, measurable outcome. And if you think about a tree, I mean, goodness, if you planted a tree um, you wouldn't see growth, maybe very. You know, you you can't see a, an oak reach its height even in one human lifetime, and so fruitfulness is not always measurable. I mean, if we're even thinking about the fruitfulness that Paul tells us about, you know, love and joy and peace and patience, like I don't find any of these always that measurable within myself. Um, so I think that is a huge difference. I think it takes patience to grow fruit. I don't think you're always satisfied with having a sense of the measurable outcome of it. And I think the other thing too, is, I mean, if we're really honest, what gets on our list for like the productive life, it's like my goals, my agenda, my to do's. And I think fruitfulness, I think, is like the missional life. It's like the life that God Mm. grows in us that he means for the world. Um we don't often don't talk about that aspect of fruit but a tree doesn't eat its own fruit you know and a vine doesn't eat its own grapes um the grapes feed the feed the birds and the apples feed you know everybody the, the humans and the worms um and so a fruitful life really is meant for others i believe that that is a vision of the kingdom life
0: mm-hmm. That's so good and not something we often think about when we are thinking about organizing our times or our, our time or our schedule. I, I love the way you said that. We're so focused on to our to-do list that we don't always get to that other focused time, mm. at least to intentional about it, right? Mm-hmm. A- I think the other thing I'm struck by what you're saying is how countercultural what you're saying is. I mean, mm. we live we live in America. We live in the Western, you know, the Western hemisphere. We live in a place, you know, and, and I live in the suburbs. I mean, you know, we live in a world in which it is all about the ticking of the clock and what you're producing and what your children are producing. And, and that's how we, we, we attach our identity to that. We, yeah. we feel other, it's a reflection um, of, What kind of person we are, how accomplished maybe, or how um, competent is the word I'm looking for? You know, there's so Mm. much tied up in that. And so really to do what you're saying is so countercultural in the, the waters we swim in today.
1: Yes, I can picture when I was sitting at Starbucks, um, we had just moved back to the States. I think there's a particular hurry. We had, we had moved back from Canada and I lived in a big city. I lived in Toronto. Like it's a very high achieving uh, culture, but there's just a particular hurry that is very American. I don't know. I Maybe we could think about healthcare. You know, Canadians are sort of they are conditioned to wait in their health care in different ways. So I think there's just a conditioning that can happen culturally. And, and, and that doesn't really happen in the U.S. We get to kind of have things at our disposal almost instantaneously. So um, we had just moved back. I was sitting at Starbucks in the outside patio and I noticed this car like zoom into the spot where they have already pre-ordered their coffee. The person leaves the car running. They like rush into Starbucks to get the coffee they've already pre-ordered. And then they rush back out and then they, like, you know, screech out of the parking lot. And I just thought, wow, gosh, that is, that person's in a definite hurry. And You know, on the one hand, we could say, I I mean, who knows? I don't know. You know, maybe she was, or I don't even remember if it was a man or a woman, truthfully, but maybe this person was hurried for, they're going to a person in an emergency. You know, I I have no idea. Um, So I don't, I'm not judging their situation. I just think that we live in a culture that we feel like oh, my goodness, you know, time's getting away from me. I've got to hurry these things. I'm never patient to slow down. I can't even wait in line at Starbucks. Like, mm-hmm. I can't even literally, like, order my coffee in Starbucks. I'm going to use the app to order in, in, in advance and there's a conditioning that happens that is transferable to other areas of life. I just think it, it it of course, you know, and we I was just telling my husband actually the other day, I feel like we've both had our waiting seasons right now. I've been waiting truthfully on the next book project idea. I've just had no clarity about that. And part of me feels like, well, just I mean, you got to get to the next project. Well, if I don't have clarity and I'm not sure about that, I don't know how to move on that. And that is something I have to spiritually kind of discern and pray about and wait. I just haven't known. So I couldn't act. And my husband has a situation where he's waiting, on uh, just a particular job situation. And I told him, I said, you know, I was just reading the story of Joseph. He had to wait 13 years between the time when his brothers sold him into slavery. And then he rises, you know, to power in Pharaoh's court. Wow. I mean, I've never waited. I can barely wait 13 seconds and, and 13 <laughs> years and somehow like this is God's way with us. Mm -hmm. So to surrender like the kind of relentless move forward is very hard and I don't do it well.
0: I, I imagine most of us don't do it well. It's funny to hear you say that about the story of Joseph because my husband always reminds me that um, Moses spent 40 years being a shepherd before God called him <laughs> to the thing. And I'm like, that's actually not really helpful for me. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I, I'm looking for something different than just wait for 40 years. And so, but isn't that funny that, that we have this sense of the way things need to go down in a certain time. And it's just like, that is not God's that is not the way God operates, right? He operates outside of time in such a different way. And he calls us to have a different perspective, but we have to we have to be intentional about seeing that. And that's really hard because we gotta get our Starbucks and we gotta get to work and we gotta get the kids from school. And, you know, it's just, I think so many of us want a different relationship with time. We want a different perspective. And yet it's like, but I have all this, like life is managing me, right? I am not managing mm. uh, my time time is managing me. And I think Mm -hmm. it's so hard. And we're gonna get to maybe how we can get out of that a little bit when we talk about rule of life, but I think it's so hard to just get off that that train, you know?
1: Yeah. I think I think it's such an important point. And I would just say that there is a way that our culture is oriented toward this like constant acceleration. And that's a word that I use that I I I learned from somebody else. Um, it's Harmit Rosa is a German guy. And I didn't read the German guy. I read a, another guy who read the German guy, but essentially this idea that technology is really changing the way the relationship we have with time and our experience of time. And we live an accelerated experience of time, like our forebears have not lived. And it's like, it is causing us a lot of dis-ease and we can't simply just step outside of it just because we want to. I mean, I guess, unless you move to, you know, the cornfields of Indiana and like, I don't know, maybe, you know, choose an Amish way of living, which maybe some people will choose to do. But if you're in the suburbs of Chicago, or if you're, you know, just kind of living the sort of routine American life, you are forced into these conditions. And I think it's okay to say, we can only make certain choices. Now we should be as courageous as we can about the choices that we have while also realizing, oh, it's almost like Jews and ancient Jews in Egyptian slavery. You know, they could make certain choices for their freedom um, and then other choices they couldn't make. I think the really cool thing is to think about how communities can start to make choices because as soon as, communities make different choices together, then that really does free individuals to make different choices.
0: Hmm. Wow. Now that's a powerful statement.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about it and, and this will, I'm sure we'll get there in the rule of life, but just even the way that we experience time, I mean, right now, the fact that so many people work from home you know, we've suddenly changed our experience with time um, and for good and for ill, you know, for the people who have continued to remain at home. But, you know, so my husband, for example, works from home full time. He'd much rather be in the office. But this is just a condition that's imposed upon him by the company that he works for. And it means there's this permeability between work and home um for him in ways that he just can't change you know it is just it is just a fact of remote work that sometimes you just don't know where work ends and home begins Mm. Um, but when companies for example you know choose to bring people back to the office or choose to have four-day work weeks or choose to have no emails on the weekends All of these choices organizationally change the way that individuals can experience time. And I think that's a huge invitation for Christians. You know, Jen, one of the
0: things I love about your book is that you expose a lot of the lies that we believe about time. You talk about time anxiety. You talk about the difference between um, wisdom and efficiency. You know, God desires wisdom over efficiency. You you talk about how if we often feel like if we slow down, that that means we're failing. You know, there's so many things you expose about the narratives that we believe about time that are so good. I would point people to your book uh, to read those for sure. But one of the things you say is that we also have choices about our time. And you say we have three choices. We can drift we can drown or we can decide. And I thought that was so interesting. And I would love for you to just take a minute and unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Mm. Well, I found those three verbs from, oh gosh, I think it was like a 1970s time management book. And that was how, I think it's Alan Lakin. I don't remember the name of the book, but um, it was sort of his formulation that, and this is so often the kind of like, the call to the time managers, you know, be savvy about your time. Because if you're not like you're either going to drift, you're going to be aimless. You won't have clarified your goals and your commitments. So you're going to be scattered, your efforts and your energy. So you could drift, you can drown. You'll just be overwhelmed with all the tasks and you're not, because you don't have any good systems um or you can decide. You know, you can start to decide what um is important to you and decide how you're going to organize your day. And I am such a decider. I think it's um I'm sure one of the personality tests would tell me why exactly. I think it's probably the Myers-Briggs, but you know, I don't like open loops, you know. So I love to decide. I think deciding feels on the one hand like this way in which we're endowed with god's image to be deciders when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't say, well, you know, here's exactly what you need to do in exactly this way at exactly this time. You know, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Like there, there's there's this invitation to be creative, to be faithful in our kind of just deciding um, how we worship and work in the garden. Um, and then, of course, deciding has gone terribly wrong for humanity. <laughs> I mean, it only took two chapters. Um <laughs> So, there's on the one hand, I'm so attracted to deciding because I think there's something really beautiful and God given about our ability and capacity to decide. The other thing, though, that I talk about in the book is that so much of life is not ours to decide. When we got into the pandemic, who decided that? Who decided that we? people would die? Who decided that people would get sick and get long COVID? Who decided people would lose their work? Who decided that we would be shut inside you know, for so long? Um, we didn't get to decide that. And so much of life, we don't decide. And if there's anything, and I guess I would say one of the reasons why I'm also attracted to deciding is maybe because I kick against the goads of the of just life being framed in this way. You know, loss has shaped... And like my life, you know, I lost my dad when I was young, um, well, 18, and my brother when I was 23. So there's a way in which like I kind of know this. I know life isn't ours to decide, but I want to decide as much as I can. (laughs) And so there's this real paradox, I think, as Christians that we, we inhabit attention here we don't decide life. God is deciding life. You know, time is a gift we receive from him. Every breath I take in, it is a gift from my creator and sustainer. Um, so if I get to decide anything this day, it will be because I have been endowed with the gift of life. And I have been endowed with the gift of being made in the image of the great decider. Um, Mm -hmm. But I have to like I have to, as I go forth into the day, I have to be surrendered to whatever comes. You know like we were just talking about Joseph, we were just talking about Moses, seasons of waiting, seasons of hardship and suffering. I wish to say that I were fully on board with counting it all joy <laughs> that you suffered trials of many kinds, but I am often not. I often just I lack the wisdom to see that. Um, So that's my complicated relationship with deciding. And I think it probably paints how a lot of us feel our relationship to, to deciding is. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, I've always appreciated how vulnerable you have been about sharing the story of loss in your life over time and some of the the ways you have encountered grief that some people have not encountered. And, And I think it's so interesting that the way that that has allowed you to step back and kind of look at time in a different, through a different lens. And yet, even with that, you still struggle against the clock. Like there's still you have to be intentional about how you want to manage your your time, and it's more than about just managing your time. It's about these habits and these practices and these rhythms you have intentionally chosen to put in your life, um, because you know theologically you have a different view of time, but also that it requires moving through your actual life in different ways. And one of the mm-hmm. ways that you have found to, to kind of pattern your life that's been really helpful is to institute a role of life. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you can talk a little bit for people listening who have no idea what a role of life is, where it came from, why it matters. I was hoping you could just start there and educate us a little bit about what it is.
1: Mm hmm. A rule of life comes to us from the monasteries. And so they were community documents very early where, you know, monks and also nuns, you know, joined together to live under the rule of Christ. But then to our, they were articulating certain habits and practices and commitments that they would have as a community. So probably the most famous of the monastic rules is the rule of Saint Benedict and this is like end of 5th century, 6th century and if you open the rule of Saint Benedict you're going to find all kinds of things like here's how we're going to read through the Psalms every month here's how we are going to observe the feasting and fasting seasons of the church calendar if we're fasting we're going to eat dinner at this time and if we're in a feast season our dinner time is going to change and then if you're assigned to the kitchen, here's how you take care of the kitchen tools. And we're going to pray at these times and definitely, you know, pray with your cloak on because you're going to have to get up at three in the morning. I think you also have to have your belt around you or something. I don't, I don't remember all the ins and outs, but the idea is that we are given like, actually the clock comes to us from the monasteries. And so the people who are taking time, quote unquote, so seriously before we could even really measure our seconds were the monks and they were the nuns. And they were the people who said, you know, we really want to live under the rule of Christ. We want every hour of every day to be attuned to, we want to be attuned to his voice and we want to live in faithful response to him. Um, So the rules, you know, the idea of a rule of life really comes to us from these communities I think we're starting to see a resurgence of interest in just this whole idea of like an individual rule of life. I think for one, because we're all experiencing this accelerated kind of chaotic version of time, the sense that like, I'll never be able to get everything done. The demands on me are inhumane. Maybe I better just take a step back and say, what really matters? How will I live into those priorities? Um, and discern with God, you know, the commitments that I have, and I'm not going to accomplish, you know, the rule of St. Benedict isn't about all this ambition and aspiration to change the world. It really is about just like, how can we engage regular faithfulness in our work in our study in our prayer and in our, you know, life with this, even beyond the walls of the monastery, how will we love our neighbor? Well, and so that started to sound really good to me as I was reading more and more about it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so as you were reading more and more about it, how did you start to step into that and, and make it part of your own life?
1: Well, I was reading Esther DeWall. Um, she's written a lot of books about you know Benedict and she was talking about steadfastness and perseverance. These are kind of the key Benedictine expressions of faithfulness, just staying steadfast and persevering. And I was reading her early in the pandemic, and I thought, well, if anything that I need in this season, it's steadfastness. So I started to identify just, you know, what are some practices throughout my days and weeks that would help me? And the first thing I did was I started to try very, very erratically and certainly not consistently, try to pray the hours you know, the monks would, they, they would have a bell, you know, that would ring in the monastery. And one of the things in the rule of St. Benedict, it says, definitely whatever you're doing, as soon as you hear that bell, you leave whatever you're doing and you come straight away to prayer. And I thought, well, that kind of is a great thing, you know, kind of not just the morning quiet time, you know, regimen that was given to us, given to me, I guess, as an evangelical teenager, but to just think about, you know, maybe some more fixed times during the day to pray, I will say the first, the reason why I started to do that was just because I thought maybe I'll feel less anxious again in the pandemic. And you know what always was the hardest was the hardest was the midday prayer. I never wanted to like leave off kind of the momentum of the day, the like checking off the list. And the interesting thing is, is that I always just noticed the midday office. It would always start with like the Psalm of like, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You know, it always would just call us back into worship and reorient, you know, just the like, why are you even moving through this day? You know, your whole life is an offering of worship. So that was kind of cool. And I, I could start to see how, you know what it did, especially fixed hour prayer. It just reminded me that most of the things that I was doing were not as urgent as I thought. Mm. I now I also had the flexibility of self-directed work, you know, freelance kind of writing work. Um, But I know that even my husband, you know, had can make time for fixed hour prayer. Maybe not at noon on the dot, and maybe not at you know five p.m. But there are ways I think a lot of us could create space in our day. This is Ruth Haley Barton's language for a rule of life um, that it's about. Well, actually, it's John Mark Comer who talks about creating space. Ruth Haley Barton who talks about being open and available to God. And I just I love to put those together: creating space to be open and available to God. I started to do that in some more intentional ways, just through that one practice, fixed hour prayer. Um, and then a lot. Of, and then yeah, I can tell you kind of how it went from there, but. I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> well, <clears throat> I, I just think this idea of anxiety, you said you were doing it. You started out doing it as, as a way to make you less anxious about the pan- during the pandemic, but less anxious about time. And I'm just wondering, did that start to help? And if mm. so, why? Why? Why were you feeling anxious and how did this start to transform your anxiety into something different?
1: most of my anxiety about time was about getting things done and not having enough time to do it and it wouldn't always be work stuff you know it'd be like oh i want to call that friend or so so one of the first things i started to do in the pandemic was like i'm going to just write all the list you know i'm going to write the list of like the things that I haven't gotten to, and, and there were a lot of people on that list. You know, people that I hadn't called, or or people that I wanted to check in on. Um, lonely, you know, unmarried people, or just not to say that unmarried people are always lonely, but I was just thinking about people who were quarantined alone. You know, at least I was quarantined with my family. Um, thinking about like medical professionals, and so what happened was my list got enormous. I there was no boundary for that list because it was all on a digital app, you know. It, it literally did not allow me any boundary. Like the sky was the limit in terms of the people I could think about to pray and it was it was all kinds of good things. But I was just becoming more and more overwhelmed like I will never be faithful to all of these things. I could never get all these things done. Oh my goodness. And there's just this it, I think I just can name it. And everybody knows what it feels like to feel you're just crushed. You're crushed under the weight of the to-dos. And what, so when I started to pray the fixed hour prayer, it, it meant leaving off the to-dos, even just for like five, eight minutes. And it, it did reorient me. It was like, wait, okay, the, all time belongs to God. If God equips his people with everything good for doing his will, certainly time will be one of those things the other so it also gave me a realism it's it made me and i don't know if it was this was like this practice of prayer i think it was just being more attentive too i realized these lists are just not helpful <laughs> you know i should not keep a list of absolutely everything i would ever do if i had the imaginable time that just is no you know and i literally went back to a paper planner and I was like, whatever can fit on this, these two pieces of paper for the week, this weekly spread eight and a half by 11, eight and a half by 11, you know, and I had, sure I have other lists, um, like in there and I do have other lists that I keep, but I really started to get more sober about time and what was happening simultaneously or, or really about a year and a half, a year ish into the pandemic is that I realized that my mother was sick. And this was just another huge learning alongside, you know, fixed hour prayer. Like it was it was just the spiritual habit of caring for another person, like actually opening up my world to and my day to interruptions for another person. It became clear that my mom was sick. And that I needed to start taking over her baking. I had to start taking over some legal paperwork. I eventually we had to move, you know, we had to get her settled in close to us. Like this is a whole long journey that I'm sketching in the scantest terms here, but it made me realize the interruptions are so often the most fertile, fruitful places, Mm -hmm. especially when you're taking up the burdens of love. And I can't say that I've always done that with a cheerful heart. I have not. But it has been an active practice of leaving off the to-dos, like a- allowing God really some like – I'm creating space to be open and available to God. I'm creating space to be open and available to my neighbor in some new ways. Mm-hmm. That's been really fruitful.
0: Well, one of the stories you tell in the book that was um... – so impactful to me was that story. You tell a story about, you know, you're on a deadline and you have certain things that you have to do and you only have so much time and there are a variety of things that come up you know a friend is in crisis your husband needs you in, in a medical you know there's a medical emergency that your husband has there is a, a a contractor that you're in relationship with that wants to tell you you know he has cancer and talk through his diagnosis and and what i'm struck by is that and we have all been in those moments of I know I need to be present to this person, and yet I have so much to do. I don't have time for this. And Mm. what I was struck by as you unfold these stories, and the same thing of this unfolding story with your mom and your decision to move back, to be closer to her, to care for her, is I think that when we have a rule of life, when we know what is anchoring those decisions and, and, and our intentionality about how we're going to make those decisions, It's not the clock that is driving those decisions. We can come back to what we said is important to us, what we said we want to commit to. And so if one of the things in your rule of life is that you're going to make space for people. And so you've decided in advance that when those interruptions come, you're going to choose the person in front of you over the clock. I don't know if that's Mm. true of you. I'm kind of, that's what I was kind of reflecting on as I was reading like the value of having that rule of life is when you say these are the habits that are going to shape and form me, you can make those decisions in a way that you can't or maybe are not as equipped to do if you're not willing to be intentional to say, what are the habits and the rhythms and the the things that are going to shape me so I can make those decisions? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's making any sense, but I'm so struck by that.
1: That's making a ton of sense. Yes. A rule of life. The, where I start when I work people through the workshop is I say, the first thing you got to do is you got to have some habits and practices of like listening to God. You know, you could never discern what is, what is meant to be in your rule unless you're keeping company with God. And so there's something really wonderful about God doesn't just lay more on your plate. There's a lot of things I felt relieved of. I felt that, yes, God was inviting me in this season to care for my mom. When we moved to Cincinnati, I said, I just don't see how I can volunteer. That's always just been kind of a, an important habit and practice, you know, to be somewhere in the community and doing something, um, trying to be a good citizen and a good neighbor. Um, and I was had a more realistic sense, I think, of the time that I had. I knew what I was saying yes to. And I just felt the freedom to say for this first year, I'm not gonna volunteer outside of what I'm currently doing to like get our family settled, get my mom settled. I had to get my mom in with new doctors. And I mean, we had to get her diagnosis. We, I mean, there's just, there was just so much. And so it was just a freedom. It was a, and I think there's an incredible amount of freedom that we might not appreciate when we set some constraints in our lives. Because, I mean, I just heard today, you know, I, I am that wind-tossed believer that is so often, you know, spoken of in scripture with not very, you know, high esteem. Um, but, you know, people think I should do X, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, of course I should do X because Sue Ann told me that I, you know, that I would be good at it or that I, um, that it's really important or that it's a biblical um, commitment, and you know, good Christians do it. Um, and so, I have been that wind tossed Christian to organize my life, my days, my hours, my time according to what other people say is good. And it's just, it's just a, it's just a fault and a failing, you know. And it's not that I, again, I think. The beautiful thing about a rule is that it's very communal. So it's not as if I'm just shutting out my, like I'm not stopping my ears to the trusted voices of wisdom in my life. Um, But there are a lot of things that I only could know for myself in community with God. You know, even my husband can't tell me, I think you should see your mom two or three times a week. My, My husband would probably say, Jen, if you're getting your mom to church and we're having lunch with her every Sunday, call it a call it a week and it's good. Um, and I just have felt like God's like, no, you know, just regular, just be really regularly present for her. Um, which I don't find easy to do. But here is the amazing thing that I have found. So not only the freedom to be like, I'm not doing this because I am doing this because I've discerned that this is what God's called me to do. And then there's a huge joy in it. Like you said, like if my mom has a doctor's appointment, I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, not, okay. I'm not going to say huge joy always. But for sure, like I have organized my time and my week to receive these regular commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is another thing. Like sometimes we're just literally overscheduled. And so when a very good interruption comes, we just don't have any space for it. Um, and that's a real thing. Um, I was going to say something else, which I completely forgot about, but I was just thinking about the freedom. I was thinking about the joy. And And I, oh, this is what I was going to say. I was going to think, I was thinking about the transformation. So I just recently spoke to Uche Anazor about his book, Overcoming Apathy. So good. And he was talking about how when you lean away from something, it just fosters more neglect because you're distant from it. Of course, you're not going to care about the things that you don't regularly encounter. And so a rule of life, for example, drawing me into regular contact with my mom means I actually care more and more. I I thought that it would just be like, okay, I know God wants me to do this and this is a good obligation to take up because I love because I'm called to honor my mom. But it is actually creating real love in me. Like real occasions for compassion and mercy. Not as much as I want. I the transformation lags for me. But I think if I were just distant from her and not regularly engaged, I wouldn't be experiencing that. So a rule of life calls you to the things that the things you most deeply desire. Of course, like as as God's children, we most deeply desire to live a life of faithful response to him. I think that is our deepest desire. Then we get distracted then we get, you know, the the thorns and weeds of life, you know, kind of choke out the good desires. A rule of life says, "What? no, intentionally put yourself in that path of transformation and then see what God does. Mm-hmm.
0: That's so good. It's reminding me, you know, scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so yes. often we say where our heart is there, our treasure will follow, but it's actually the opposite where we put our treasure, our heart, our desire will follow that. And, you know, we so often talk about money in that way, Mm. but what you're talking about is, you know, where we are putting our effort, our intentionality, when we make decisions to invest in certain areas, God actually changes our heart. He actually reorients our hearts to those things as well. And I think that's just a beautiful way that God transforms us. And what a, you Mm -hmm. just said it so eloquently. What a beautiful picture of how that's happened in in your life through being really intentional with some of these practices. So I Mm. love
1: that.
0: If someone's listening right now and they are like, okay, it's January, start of a new year, they're looking ahead and they're just like, I am a hot mess, right? Like, I need help. I am ruled by my calendar. I don't have enough hours in the day. I feel like I'm being blown by the wind, as you said. I don't know how to make my choices or kind of get a hold of this. Like the the train has left the station and I'm trying to like pull it back in. Um, If someone is feeling that way and they're looking for a place to start and they're hearing you and they're saying, you know what, a rule of life might be exactly what I need. Maybe this is a good idea. Where would you encourage them to begin?
1: Hmm. This might not have been my answer even two weeks ago, but I was recently talking about talking to a pastor who's leading his community, um, through a rule of life and just, you know, individually, but also as a community and said, we're starting with rest. I was like, Oh, that's brilliant. The, and that's where God starts right in the garden. Um, he makes the whole creation. He makes Adam and Eve. And he's like day one rest. I don't think that we would get into the the true mode of a rule of life which is like everything is sufficient time is sufficient energy will be sufficient for the things that god calls us to i don't know if we can even get there if we're completely depleted i'd love for people to just maybe people need to say i'm going to create some space to be reflective but i'm going to have to pro- in order to create that space you know i might have to say no to a commitment I might have to put some boundaries on my work, observe the Sabbath. Maybe a Sabbath sounds crazy, a whole day without work. Maybe it's just, you know, three hours of your, of your Sunday afternoon um, beyond worship. You know, um, I would assume that that would be a part of your Sabbath. So rest, you know, I would say. And because otherwise it may just feel like another to do. But I think that creating that restful space, I mean, is the coming to jesus right that's how jesus says you know come you know take come to me learn from me you know take like find rest for your souls but that's in coming to me so i think it's like it's a both and you know creating some space for some rest and assuming that your rest might provide you with some space to take some silence to get quiet before jesus And even if you just ask the questions in this season, what cares are you asking me to carry? And what cares are you asking me to lay down? I don't think we can just take up new cares. I think maybe we'll just, we might even just be sustaining some of the cares that we're already involved in, but how wonderful to know, oh, actually that's a thing God wants me to do. You know, it just felt like work. It felt like a job before, but now God's like, no, no. Good and God-given care I'm asking you to carry. Um, But then, wow, what if we get to know some things we get to lay down? So that's what I would say, creating space for rest, you know, really like getting some sleep. um, And then starting to listen to Jesus on those things, those questions. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a great place to start. And I love that you also give people permission to not just make it another to do, but actually set Mm. aside time to do that. And again, it's going to feel countercultural. People are going to think they don't have time for it. But Um, what more important thing can you make space for, create space, I love that, to create space for, than to um, just rest and listen and have a little bit of margin to see where Jesus might be calling you in this area. So I think that's Mm. a really wise word and a great place for people to start. Um, When when I do the outro of this podcast, I will point people to your role of life intensive. I am planning on joining you in March. And so I am excited to take a a fuller dive And I am in a phase where, you know, I've just finished something and I'm kind of starting a new season and I I find myself rudderless. You know, I find myself Mm. looking for an anchor. And um, I'm really excited to, to put this practice into space in my own life. And so I will point people to that. I will invite people to join me on that journey as well. Uh, As well as look up the resources uh, that you have, the articles you've written, your book, so many good things you have to say on this topic. And I can't believe that we are out of time because I had about eight pages of questions for you. We are out of time. How ironic. Never have enough time. But so much good stuff. And so, Jen, I just want to wrap up with one question. I ask this of everyone that comes on my podcast. Um, This podcast is called Deeper Still. And it's called Deeper Still because we believe that we are all a work in progress, that oftentimes we get to an area of our life and we think we've gotten pretty good at it or we're starting to feel comfortable. And just when we get to that place, God says, ah, no, actually, I'm calling you deeper. And then just when we get to that place, he says, actually, I'm calling you deeper still. Mm. And so um, I would be curious if you would do us the privilege of sharing with us, where is God calling you to go deeper still in your life right now?
1: Mm. I thought this was a tough question. Was like, what will I, hmm, you know, what do I really want to share? I think... Vulnerably, I guess I would just say deeper still in letting go of some of my attachments to, to, to things that are just not exactly. It's not as if they're bad necessarily, but I think of Julian of Norwich's prayer, like, you know, God of your goodness, give me yourself. If I have you, you know, I have everything. And if I have everything else and have not you, I have nothing. And that all sounds so great until God's like, well, this thing that you're attached to, um, this pleasure, this comfort, this convenience, what would it look like to give that up? Um, I mean, it, it truthfully is a, it's a kind of fasting season, I think, for me. It's about considering the things, the intentional ways I might renounce something to go deeper still, to go deeper still into the idea that God of your goodness, give me yourself. You know, if I have you, I have everything. Um, I don't love it. (laughs) I don't love deprivation. I don't wanna go deeper still into deprivation. I wanna go deeper still into joy. But I (laughs) I think it's for that purpose. You know, I really do believe that anything we would give up any attachment that we think serves us to give it up because God says that doesn't serve you is actually will be for our good. And I I think that's the journey I'm on.
0: Well, thanks for your vulnerability. Thanks for sharing that uh, with us. I think it's a great place to end us, a great thought to um, just leave our listeners with. And so thank you for that. Thank you for all the wisdom you have poured on us today. You are a gift, uh, not only to me and my journey, and I know to our listeners, but to the broader church. You are you're such a gift. And so thanks for being you, and thanks for being here today.
1: Mm, thanks so much, Sue This was fun.
0: Well friends, I hope that was as helpful for you as it was for me, especially as we start to wrestle with this idea of what it looks like to reframe our relationship with time. I would just encourage you go check out Jen's website, jenpollackmichelle.com. So many good resources there to continue this conversation, as well as a link to register for her rule of life intensive coming up on March 1st. I am taking that. I hope you'll join me as well. I'd also encourage you to follow Jen on Instagram at Jen P. So many good things happening there as well. And also be sure to check out Jen's books, all of her amazing books, including In Good Time on Amazon and wherever you like to buy your books. For those friends who are local, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that we are starting to think about Lent and how we kick off Lent here at Christchurch and in many churches across the globe is with Ash Wednesday. That happens on February 14th, Valentine's Day. If you have never participated in an Ash Wednesday service or even experienced what it feels like to receive ashes, I would just really encourage you, maybe consider including that in your Lenten journey this year. If you're local and are looking for a place to receive ashes or perhaps go to an Ash Wednesday service, know that all of those things are happening here at Christchurch. You can go to our website, christchurch.us, and find all the details. Well, alrighty, friends. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'll be back again in two weeks with another hopefully great episode. And I do hope that you will join us again then. Until then, don't forget to pay attention to how God is calling you to go deeper still and go in His grace.